Hello everyone, this is Steve Pixler again with you on the Steve Pixler Podcast. I am that one for which this show is named, which always makes me feel a little bit self-conscious, like I have such a high standard to live up to. Ha. My wife would roll her eyes right about there. It is really good to be with you again. We're going to talk about something a little bit different today, but still always, of course, rooted in the kingdom of God. You guys ready? Let's talk a little bit about gratitude. Now, it may seem a little bit odd when we spend so much time talking about the kingdom of God to suddenly take a sharp right turn toward this thing called gratitude. But actually, as I've been thinking about it and pondering deep up on it the last few days, I've actually been thinking about how much gratitude really lies at the heart of the transformation that is needed to bring change to the world. I often say changed people change the world. And I really think that gratitude is one of the fundamental transformations that happens within an individual that allows them to truly model and mediate transformation to the world. Gratitude is um, it's trans it's transmittable. Is that the right word? Transmissible. It's when gratitude is working within you. It's very contagious. It actually flows out of you into the world around you in a very transformative way. Now, gratitude, we often talk about gratitude, attitude, oftentimes in self-help and in personal improvement and personal growth literature, writing, podcasts, training, teaching, counseling. Oftentimes, we go to this thing called gratitude, and it's because, of course, it is fundamental and it really works. But I want to show you how much in Scripture today, gratitude really lies at the heart of the kingdom message. Now, remember, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule of God flowing into the world through you and me. We're talking about how God created all things in partnership uh, or for partnership with humans. He created all things. The heavens belong to the Lord. The earth belongs to the children of men. He created all things to be the domain of human dominion and that the rule of God in partnership with humans, is worked out into the world. That's really what the kingdom of God is all about. We can't have the kingdom of God if it's just God. We can't have the kingdom of God if it's just humans. It has to be a partnership between God and humans. This is why the incarnation, of course, is the ultimate act that manifests what the kingdom looks like. It looks like God coming into the world to bring deliverance and salvation and healing into the world so that the rule of heaven can be mediated into the world through that partnership. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How? In earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom of God is the rule of God in partnership with humans, working out that dominion through the kingly responsibility of men and women in the world. And this is why we often talk about the kingdom of God being worked out in our metron. There's a word we use often. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he talks about the area of influence to which we've all been assigned. So the kingdom of God works out in the world by us understanding the area of influence we have been assigned and then serving 
in love, leading, influencing, being poured out for the life of others within the realm or the region or the area or the sphere, we like to say, that God has given us. That's the kingdom of God. Now, it's very interesting to me that the kingdom of God, as it comes in the world, can only bring true transformation into the world when it truly reflects the nature of the king. The nature of the king is love. God is love. The kingdom of God then does not work on a power principle. Now, of course, love is very powerful, but the power principle is is inverted. It's literally love turned back on itself into a form of selfishness, which then causes people to seek power as a form of self-actualization. In other words, I'm going to try to I'm going to push for my agenda. I'm going to push for my self-promotion. I'm going to push for what's best for me. Now, every human in the planet is born with self-interest. There's nothing wrong with being a healthy self. It's what Andrew Friedman calls being selfed instead of selfish. Being healthily selfed or self-actualized is actually a part of the way God made us, and he wants us to discover that. The problem is that when... We're born in this world, in this fallen world, and we begin to fight for survival. The fear of death, the mortality that's upon us all, causes us all to vie for position, for possession, for prominence, for popularity, for prosperity. We begin to fight with one another because we feel threatened because of the sense of doom that is upon us through our mortality. And we're born with that, by the way. All our lifetime, we're subject to slavery, Hebrews says, through the fear of death. And when when an infant comes into the world, he's born with several very base fears. One of them is the fear of being alone. The other one is the fear of privation, of not having enough to eat or not having comfort, such as his soiled diaper being changed. He also fears falling. He fears loud noises. Why does he fear being alone, privation, falling, loud noises? Why, why does he fear these things? Because there is an inherent sense of mortality that humans are born into. There's a fear of not surviving. And so we have this will to survive within us. Well, that impulse is what drives people toward a power structure that actually works its way out as a sense of entitlement. I've got to get what's mine. I've got to have what's mine. I'm going to fight for my rights. I'm going to stand up for what belongs to me. And so when that impulse and that urgency that's rooted in fear begins to work its way out into human society, it develops into this power structure with through which people vie with one another, compete with one another. The hostility begins to work. That's why you'll have racism, sexism, genderism, ageism, classism, all the other isms and schisms that develop in the human race. Where does that all come from? It all comes from this fear of not having enough, of not being enough, of always that that sense of foreboding that is upon us because of our mortality. And this is why when Jesus came, he came to defeat death. He came to defeat that sense of mortality, and he came to put in the place of that sense of mortality, which of course works out as despair. He came to give us in the place of that despair, this thing called hope. And when we get hope, 
what happens is now we suddenly see we have access to the tree of life again. We're now restored back to the promise of immortality. We're restored back to the promise of resurrection. Salvation is called eternal life. Now that I have this promise that I will be raised when I die, now that I have this promise that death is not the end for me, and that I have an answer beyond the grave, and I have a hope beyond the grave, then suddenly I begin to step out of that living from a place of fear. I begin to realize, oh, the sentence of death is not upon me. No longer must I live as if everything is going to be taken from me. Someone's going to steal my toys and take my candy. I have to fight for everything I get, and I've got to, I've got to go to war with you to keep you from taking away my stuff. That sense of hope, that sense of looking to the future and knowing that death is now not my final destiny, when I get that, when that begins to break in upon me, it brings this sense not only of hope, but it begins to break, break the sense of entitlement that we have as humans. I am owed something. You have to give me that. That belongs to me. Don't try to take my stuff. That's not fair. That's one of the first things children learn to say, that's not fair. What does it mean it's not fair? Well, something that belongs to me is being taken away, or I'm not getting my fair share. He's got more Doritos than me. Well, she's got more candy than me. Well, he got to play on the slide longer than I did. What's happening in the human mind when all of that begins to work? Well, what's happening is this fear of never having enough, never being enough, this fear of lack, this fear, and it's ultimately rooted in the fear of death. It's rooted in our mortality. So when Jesus comes to defeat death, he comes to bring us into a completely new way of seeing the world. And at the root of that new perspective is gratitude. Because now suddenly I'm not measuring what I don't have. I didn't get as much time on the slide. He got more Doritos than me. She got more candy than me. Well, I didn't, I didn't, they did. I don't have to fight with that anymore because now suddenly I'm living within the promise of God. I'm living within hope now. Now I no longer feel that fear or that need to always defend my rights. That's what allows me then to begin to live from a place of love. Now, since I'm no longer fearful and afraid. I now have hope. I now have a future. That's what he says in Jeremiah 29. I have a hope and a future. I know the plans I have for you to give you a hope and a future. Now that I have a hope and I have a future, this means that I'm secure. I'm no longer having to fight with you for anything. Since I know that God is my provider, I don't have to fight with you for the promotion at work. I don't have to fight with you for my place in traffic. I don't have to fight with you for groceries in the line at Walmart. I don't have to fight with you on Black Friday for the big TV that's on sale. I don't have to fight with you for anything because I'm living from a place of hope. That allows me then to stand in a place of gratitude. I can then look at what I have and say, hey, how blessed am I? I have everything I need and more. I have the promise of eternal life and heaven is flowing into earth through me. Then I begin to live from a place of gratitude. Now, this is huge because if you go back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve believed the lie about God, about one another, about the world around them, about themselves, when they believed the lie about God, about self, and about others, 
They believed that lie because their hearts was, was turned successfully by the tempter. Their hearts were turned away from gratitude. Instead of walking through the garden, letting their fingers rustle through the leaves of the beautiful trees and sampling all of the glorious fruit that they had around them, Satan successfully fixated them on their lack on what they did not have. Now, the fact is, the lack was a lie. The lack was a lie. The knowledge of good and evil was actually something that they would have grown into in maturity. The Bible says that strong meat belongs to those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, to know good and evil is a sign of maturity in Scripture. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a godlike thing. God said, now they're like us, knowing good and evil, so... We must put them out of the garden lest they get to the tree of life and live forever. The point is, is that God wants us to know the knowledge of good and evil. He wants us to know how to discern right from wrong, but that can only be done through maturity rooted in love and relationship with him. They were prematurely jumping past relationship with him and trying to achieve knowledge that wasn't rooted in intimacy. That's a whole other podcast for another time. But the point is, Satan successfully, the serpent, whether or not you believe it was actually Satan, is a, also another podcast for another time. But Revelation 12 says it's that ancient serpent, the devil. So when the serpent persuaded them to lose sight of everything, all of the abundant provision around them, they lost sight of all the beauty around them, and all they could fixate on was the one fruit that was forbidden, that was told, no, you can't eat of that one. And that became their focus. You see, that's exactly what has happened to the human race throughout. We become focused on the lack. We become focused on the one thing we don't have. What gratitude does then is it turns our eyes back to all of the fruit trees we have been given. It turns our eyes back on what we do have. And gratitude then begins to break that spirit of entitlement that says, you owe me. I deserve that. It is not fair that you are withholding that from me. You are keeping good things back from me. How dare you? I deserve that. And that spirit of entitlement ends up festering in our spirit and it comes out as greed. It comes out as lust. It comes out as pride. It comes out all the stuff as all the stuff that John said is in the world. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. He said, all that is in, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. Now, these Worldly forces that are at work in the world are very, very powerful, but they only have power if they resonate within something within our heart. So in other words, the spirit of greed, of lust, and of pride that works in the world has no power in me unless I open my heart to it and I give myself to resonate with the spirit of the world and I begin to catch the world's cold. I begin to, this is a bad way to put it, but I begin to get the virus of the world's way of thinking. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, Paul said, by the renewing of the mind. One of the primary ways I renew my mind is gratitude. Because if I 
step into a place of gratitude, I begin to inoculate myself against the spirit of entitlement that manifests as greed and pride and lust. I want you to think about every sin or every crime or every bad behavior that's in the world today. It's all rooted in a lack of gratitude. Someone steals someone's car. Well, why did they steal that car? Well, they're not grateful for their bicycle, or they're not grateful for the hoopty that they're driving, or maybe they have a lot of great cars. They're just in a car theft ring, and they're stealing someone else's car because they think they're entitled to make wealth off of someone else's possessions. And besides, insurance will cover it, so I'm not really hurting the person. I'm taking money from big insurance. That's how they justify it in their minds. But the truth is, there's no way you can steal a car while giving thanks for what God has given you. Uh, think about adultery. Someone has an affair with someone else's wife. Why is he sleeping with someone else's wife? Because he's not thankful for his own wife. Gratitude has a way of inoculating us against all of these lusts and impulses that are driven by entitlement. And of course, entitlement, again, it's power driven. It's driven by fear. I'm trying to acquire. I'm trying to take. I'm trying to steal. I'm trying to rob or defraud, or I'm trying to cheat, or I'm trying to manipulate. I'm trying to get someone to do what I want. But the moment I stop and say, why in the world am I trying to to attain or achieve or, or, or gather all of these things when I am so presently blessed. Gratitude resets your perspective. It recalibrates your thinking. In fact, if you look in Romans chapter 1, you'll see that the lack of gratitude was the root of the idolatry and the immorality that destroyed the nation of Israel around the golden calf and then worked its way out into Israel's history. He said, because when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And then they began to work out all sorts of idolatry and immorality, all sorts of identity, distortion and confusion that all begins to work out in Romans chapter one. Now, the, the point of all of this is that they were not thankful. They were not thankful. They did not glorify God, neither were they thankful. There was a lack of gratitude. Now, I know this may sound for some people a little oversimplified. You just need to be grateful. You just need to give thanks. And I also know that when someone is going through a time of deep trauma, one of the worst things you can say to them is, you just need to be thankful. We're not talking about gratitude as a means of living in denial. We're not talking about gratitude or thankfulness as a way of, of ignoring the pain or diminishing the real suffering that, that people are going through. Oh, by no means. What I'm saying, though, is when you have truly acknowledged your situation, like Job who had lost his children, who had lost all of his possessions. And he then lifts his hands and says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job's perspective was a little skewed, just to be honest. He had not yet seen the full revelation of God in Jesus that came later. So he had a, a, a bit of a misunderstanding about who took the stuff away. It was the enemy that took the stuff away. That's another podcast for another time as well. And yet, 
in the middle of that, there's something to learn about how we give God glory even when the enemy robs us blind, even when we're standing in a time of deep, deep trauma. There is something about processing that trauma, working through that pain, facing it, not living in denial, facing it for what it really is, but then somehow in the middle of all of it saying, I will bless the Lord at all times, in the good times and in the bad times. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will give thanks always, as Paul says. I will always be thankful. I will give thanks to the Lord in everything. Give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. Why am I doing that? Because I, I'm just trying to ignore. I'm trying to somehow release some dopamine in my head and self-medicate myself with some euphoric praise and just sort of ignore the reality of what's going on in my world. No, no. If my house burns down, if my family falls apart, if a doctor gives me a terrible diagnosis, if I get fired from a job, if I'm facing failure, sin, addiction, if I'm going through depression and anxiety and I'm facing the reality of real heartbreak, I am not going to ignore the reality of that heartbreak. But somehow while embracing the depth of that pain, I am going to summon gratitude. I am going to pull together from the depths of my heart the will to give God praise in the darkest hour, in my midnight, in a Philippian prison, in the inner prison locked with stocks and chains like Paul and Silas. At midnight, I will give God praise. Oh, come on now. Kind of makes me want to preach just a little bit. Kind of feel a little bit of my Pentecostal root coming out. And you guys, all my Baptist friends, I just have to kind of deal with me a little bit. But I feel that so deep in my spirit because so often we feel like gratitude is just being Pollyanna. It's just sort of a way of not facing the harsh realities of life. But no, by no means. Gratitude is actually the way that you face the realities you face the harsh realities of life. You look them straight in the eye and you say, God is good anyway. God is good anyway. And when you begin to give God praise through that darkest night, the goodness of God will actually become your sunrise. The goodness of God will actually begin to pierce through your dilemma and you will discover the glory of God in the midst of your suffering. Now, let me wrap this up. Gratitude. How can you make this a practical thing in your life? I'm saying that every morning develop the habit of giving thanks, of just simply, not, I don't mean to be trite, but truly working on a gratitude attitude that says, I will face every hardship. My eyes open in the morning. My very first words will be words of praise. I'm going to give God the glory. I'm going to give him the praise in every area of my life because I know he is worthy. And when you truly begin to live out that reality, things begin to change in your spirit. That old entitlement spirit is broken and gratitude begins to transform who you really are. And that, of course, is how changed people change the world. That's how the kingdom comes. Come on, that's good stuff right there. It's good to be with you again. I'll see you in our next episode of the Steve Pixler Podcast. Blessings. Blessings.